Hi, I'm Mark Loftus, editor of Post, and I'd like to welcome you to the third in a series of three podcasts sponsored by Dell Technologies. Once again, I'm joined by Alex Timms and Jason Lowry, both of whom have considerable expertise in the space. Alex Timms heads up business development and alliances for media and entertainment at Dell Technologies. Welcome back, Alex. Mark, thanks so much for having me back again. Great to have you. Jason Lowry is the CTO of Architecto, which has created its own comprehensive data management platform called MediaFlux. Welcome, Jason, as well. Thank you, Mark. It's uh, great to be back. Good to have you guys again. Looking forward to the conversation. Uh, I just want to recap for our audience some of the stuff that we've talked about. This is our third episode in this podcast series. In the first episode, uh, titled The Era of Data Orchestration, we looked at some of the problems facing content creators and the media entertainment space. In our second episode, we took a look at how automation can help streamline media and entertainment workflows. And today in episode three, which we're titling The Rise of Cyber and Ransomware, we're going to look at some of the risks facing media and entertainment pipelines and how data can be better secured. Uh, Jason, you've authored another article for Post, and I'm going to include the link to it in the description for this podcast so that our audience can check it out. Uh, it addresses a lot of these concerns and a couple of interesting points about who's responsible for the security, where it starts, and one interesting idea of just unless you're keeping your content in a locked box somewhere, Everybody has to worry about this. We're not, we don't have that ideal situation where it is locked up and it's secure and nobody has access to it. With these collaborative workflows, there's so much more risk these days. So, where do we want to get started? Yeah, I wouldn't mind answering that point. I should Great. dovetail back Great. in with that point about the, the locked box. Yeah, uh, go ahead. Talk, let's talk about that because in the past, you know, there was a lot more control as to who has access to it. Maybe it was only a one facility that was working on it and drives were being sneaker netted around a facility where they're actually carrying pieces of media, but that's not the case anymore with these networked uh, workflows. So what are your thoughts? Well, clearly the, the the safest way to keep something is in a locked box and uh, make sure that it's guarded and there are no electronic uh, connections for those. But we don't live in that world anymore. Uh, there are many advantages in a connected world. Uh, one where we use the internet to transmit data around the globe at speed, that we can connect people uh, and systems together, and we've almost got real-time uh, collaboration. We can't go back to those days where we've got locked boxes, but we need to uh, really uh, improve the systems that we've gotten uh, to protect our, our data. One of the points that's uh, brought up in the article, uh, again, Jason, is that this isn't an IT issue. I think a lot of people have the perception that I'm a content creator. There's somebody behind the scenes that's managing and securing all this, but that's not not the case. It's not the IT department's sole responsibility. Everybody really has some kind of place, and you have to identify what some of these risks are and where the risks are. Well, IT does have a position to play because they look after the systems and uh, look after those things that sit below the waterline, make sure that those are functioning correctly. But mm -hmm. all of us have a role to play. Uh, humans are fallible. Uh, those are very common vectors for penetrations um, into, into systems through email or scamming, uh, phishing, et cetera. Um, 
those those often go through the weakest link, which are humans. We need systems to be keeping an eye on those uh, as much as possible to help back the uh, the people up. But we also need to train our people to make sure they are uh, continuously aware of what's going on. This is a game that is going to uh, run indefinitely. I have something, somebody else wants it. They're always looking to gain uh, a point of leverage and exploit what I've got to, to, to their advantage. So they're not going to give up. We're going to be doing this and reacting to the changes in the environment and the way in which people uh, find exploitations for decades, if not centuries, to come. Uh, yeah, look, uh, it's definitely not going away. Um, and I think, uh, Mark, you sort of touched on something that uh, rings very true to me uh, based on my experience in the industry. And, it, and that was that it's, you know, it's not an IT problem. As Jason said, it's definitely IT plays a huge role in, in mitigating risk within the business, uh, both physical and digital. Um, however, uh, cyber is, is really needs to be a, a whole of business problem. Um, and it's too often characterised as a bottom-up sort of technology-driven initiative uh, where production is, you know, prioritised over all other business activities. Mm-hmm. And the consequences of that approach uh, ultimately lead to poorer business outcomes, um, which is really embodied in the lack of business strategy, lack of awareness and some of the superficial approaches to risk, risk management. So it really needs to come top-down and be looked at as a cultural shift, fundamental cultural requirement. Um, and just jumping back to some of the drivers as to why that's so important now, um, really before the pandemic, we had a, a significant, uh, and this has been covered many times by many people, but there was already a trend in motion to support remote workflows, um, really to get access to resources, both human and infrastructure, um, where it made sense, uh, and sometimes for, for tax incentive reasons. So that, that was already in motion, but it really didn't have a lot of gravity. Uh, COVID-19 obviously forced that. Facilities had to embrace these new paradigms, including you know, supporting uh, everyone working from home and adopting these new workflows, which included SaaS and, and PaaS offerings. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there was this really seismic shift uh, to dynamic workflows uh, that were accelerated, shall we say, by you know, COVID and, and lockdowns, et cetera. So that meant that the time to market or time to get a, a solution um, was really short for, for most businesses, um, particularly the strategy about how to get people working from home. Um, and so there was this sort of avalanche of, of projects to, to pull everything apart and, and, and try to support it anywhere. Um, so this, these rapid changes without the time to kind of plan it properly and test it um, have uh, created a lot of uh, additional attack services, um, which could potentially facilitate the, the loss of content, um, you know, the intentional destruction of content or the misappropriation, uh, misuse of content. Um, and so all of that combined with the uh, shortened delivery times and, and fairly, you know, tight margins, you know, there's this massive amount of content demand around um, but these budgets have gotten much smaller. Uh, so there's a lot of factors that have played in to create this sort of perfect storm, if you will, um, where companies have increased risk. Um, and I haven't seen personally uh, the same level of uh, sort of response to that increased um, risk, uh, i.e. I haven't seen companies investing enough in cultural changes within their business to uh, mitigate that risk. 
One of the points of uh, risk that was brought up, uh, Jason, I think your article touches on it, that risk isn't something that you look at once and say, we've got this figured out. It's something that needs to be continually observed to see where these risks are and what may have been a risk you know, at one point has become more of a risk or something new has popped up. It's not something that is just, uh, you know, a steady threat. It comes from many different uh, areas. That's right, Mark. We're not going to have a threat today or tomorrow, and that's the end of it. We're going to have a threat every week, every day, every hour, and possibly every second at some time. We've got to be on our game here. Uh, and and looking at the systems as, as a whole, that is both people and technology, and we need uh, vendors and industry to work together to make sure that they they can go where they need to. They may go back to a first principles approach to to change the the playing field to thwart uh, efforts by others to steal uh, content and to hold it hostage. Um, I think in a lot of ways we're often. At, adding band-aids to existing systems and approaches to plug holes I, I i don't think that's right in the long on the long term we've got to be playing two strategies we've got to plug those holes but we also need to be taking a long-term view and seeing if we can fundamentally shift the paradigms that make it harder for others to to exploit what we're doing there's an interesting analogy in the banking sector uh we all know about credit card uh fraud and um, but it, it's a very simple remedy to a lot of credit card fraud, apart from the online fraud. But if you put a photo on a credit card, uh, you that that will uh, obviate a lot of uh, fraud. But people don't want to do it because the cost of someone going to get their their photo on a card. So the banks absorb the uh, absorb the cost, and they mm. have systems that sit on the side to to look at the uh, look at what's going on and and uh, stop this in the middle while it's happening or post hence. So we have to evaluate what we're prepared to do to uh, to stop uh, the cyber criminals from gaining advantage. And sometimes we may not want to do things that we could do that would stop them in their tracks because it's cost too costly. Or And we might accept uh, certain levels of uh, risk. It's, it's completely a risk evaluation um, problem. Mm -hmm. Alex, you had a couple of ideas about how this can be combated. One of it is a chain of custody and only moving data that it, you know, is supposed to go to where it needs to go. Is that something you would want to touch on? Uh, yeah, abs look, absolutely. Um, one of the most potent tools we have is asset management uh, and controlling the data um, associated with that. Um, in, in this industry, the most valuable thing from a business perspective, you know, apart from your, your trusted employees, um, is the data itself, because the data itself represents that creative endeavour, that investment, the, 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 the value, and that's what's most sought by um, people generally um, that have some uh, malintent towards you. Mm -hmm. um, and so really it's about controlling and managing that risk that's associated with that data. Um, and so businesses really need to look at, creative industries need to look at um, how they're managing their data, um, which includes asset management um, or for a better use of, uh, of a description, metadata management. And they're the kind of conversations they need to be having. Um, you know, 
metadata can answer questions such as what is it? You know, how is it classified? You know, how valuable is it? Uh, where is it currently? Where's it been? Uh, who should have access to it? Um, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, importantly, in this geo-distributed world that we find ourselves in now, um, only moving the data um, to the process or the individual as it's needed uh, and then potentially getting rid of that data or deprecating or having a time to live on that data once that process is complete on that data. Um, and that can be done really well with an asset management slash metadata management approach. Um, and there's a whole lot of technologies that can deliver that data rapidly to where it needs to be. Um, but you can only do that through automation because the size of the data, and we've covered this in previous podcasts, is humanly impenetrable now. You know, animated films are, or VFX for that matter are now multi-petabyte scale with hundreds of millions, probably soon to be billions of files. Um, it's impossible for a human to manage that amount of information to know where that should be, who should have it, who's actually accessed it, where it is now, et cetera. So you need to have these automated systems in place to do that for you. Um, obviously, you need to have an idea about what those connections are and who should have it and who's who, um, because otherwise the system's not going to do that for you. Uh, but you need to start having a conversation. If you're not already far down that path, you need to start having a conversation at that level uh, about metadata and asset management. Interesting point you brought up there. I think it was about the, uh, was it the life cycle or time where some assets are only available for a certain amount of time. And after that, you know, you're kind of closing the door on it so that they're not just hanging out somewhere they shouldn't be. This industry is built on iterations, right? It's, mm -hmm. it's about creative distillation. The more iterations you can do of a piece of creative work, um, the more likely you are to distill a, a better output. Um, and certainly as directors and art directors, uh, you know, their job is really to continue improving things and refining things. So they need to see lots of different versions of it, you know, tens, hundreds, sometimes thousands of different versions of a particular um, asset. And you do that through automation. So this generates a lot of different versions uh, and it rapidly deprecates data. And so what you don't want to do is have that deprecated data not managed. You don't, you know, you don't want to have it having it lying around on different systems or in people's homes uh, just because it wasn't used. So mm -hmm. I just wanted to add that, that this industry in particular generates a lot of, we won't say wasted data, but, uh, you know, we used to refer to it as the, you know, the, the cutting room floor, the stuff that didn't make it into the film. There's a lot of that digital um, debris that is left around and that needs to be managed just as much as the current valuable assets are. Good point. When you talk about iterations, how something does evolve over time, over time, and then you wonder, well, what are those prior iterations that have been saved somewhere? What happens with them? Obviously, you're probably from the production standpoint, you may be thinking, hey, we're done with that. That's something old. It's not something that I need right now, but there's it's still an asset that needs to be tracked and secured. Just because an asset's been deprecated uh, at that point in time, uh, it doesn't mean that there may be a creative pivot later on in the film uh, to you reuse an asset that was done 12 months ago. Mm -hmm. um, so, so it may be deprecated, it may not be valuable at the time, but you need to be able to have the ability to bring that asset back uh, at short notice if needed. The shorter the time these things live, the smaller the attack service surface is. It's harder for someone to get hold of it. So if things are left laying around, there's a greater chance that people will find those or, or penetrate the systems that hold those. 
Mm -hmm. The other benefit of the metadata is that it actually gives you a sense of what is normal. Things are flowing. And if you know what normal is, you can detect abnormal. It's really important to uh, be able to track the complete provenance with auditing and know what should be going where and when. When it gets outside of those uh, swim lanes, if you like, you know that that's abnormal and there's something wrong going on. When you've got so much data and so many systems and processes that it is very hard for humans to keep track of, uh, uh, it's not within their their ability to to see when small things are going wrong. We need the systems to help us uh, identify uh, cracks and when people are uh, gaining entry. That might bring us right to uh, Architecta and some of your solutions there, Jason. Do you have uh, within your technology alerts that would point out something that is unusual in what, like you said, staying within your lane when it comes to creating content. Is there something where you would say, hey, this is unusual, these files should not be available here or whatever, that you would alert somebody within the production to a, a anomaly? When you're in the data path, there's an incredible amount of metadata that's available, where things are coming from, who's who's doing what, when they do it, what the cadence is between them doing things, uh, the automatic extraction of metadata, that is available for forensic analysis and for patterns of life uh, and prediction of behaviour. So the first job that you need to, to do is to ca capture as much contextual information as possible. Uh, if you just had a file and you didn't know who produced it or where it came from, it's not as valuable as knowing where it's come from and what its purpose is and where it should be going to. Mm -hmm. So if it should be going from A to B and then all of a sudden you see it going to C, that's that's and that's out of normal. That's not normal. You should do something about it. So, yes, we can. Once we've got the metadata in the system, we can put surveillance on that is uh, monitoring uh, for abnormal behaviour. There are also other things that you can do as well. We should, we, we should have systems that uh, prevent people from deleting things that they're not entitled to delete. Mm -hmm. um, we need to incorporate the, the use of multi-factor into our systems. We need to look at uh, the whether we use things like worm, right, once, read many, and when we do that, we've got to make sure that we don't lose the things that are costly to acquire. But also, uh, in this industry, everything we produce is intellectual property, and that in its own right uh, is exploitable. So we have to make sure that people are not getting access to that in the first place. Would that fall under the category of analytics that all this metadata is being analyzed and therefore it would point out some discrepancies in what a predictable workflow might be? That's right. There is no single solution that protects the entire space. We mm -hmm. need multiple lines of defense. We need the last line of defense that uh, we can rely on just in case everything else falls over. But we've got to be going up the stack so we get as much as we can first lines of defense. The analytics are uh, not the first line of defense. They're a second and third line of defense because something's already happening and we're analyzing what's happening. But we're trying to stop that before it uh, wreaks too much havoc and we mm -hmm. can follow up. So we absolutely need those. But we also need to look at systems that disable the attack in the first place. For example, so if if, uh, if someone's uh, attempted to crypto lock all of your data, how can we stop them uh, from doing that in the first place? Well, 
multi-factor is a very interesting way to, to, to stop that. Or making sure that if that uh, does happen, that we've got ways of reverting what's happened as easily and as quickly as possible. Alex, when it comes to uh, cyber and ransomware, is there anything Dell is doing specifically to address these with its technology or in parallel with Architecta? Yeah, look, absolutely. So um, one of the primary things that we did uh, at the TME focused is we we got uh, val- you know validated uh, architectures with uh, the TPN. So we engaged a TPN auditor and we went through everything from our uh, physical security within within Dell itself, um, just to sort of uh, test out, you know, apply the same brush, I suppose, to ourselves as what our uh, what our customers would have to face. Um, we also had that have had the order to have a, a deep look at uh, you know OneFS, the operating system for our storage, uh, and audit that from a control access control perspective, from a um, hardened perspective, um, and. We also did some designs, that uh, architectural designs that would be very common in media and entertainment, uh, such as network isolation or, or segregation, um, you know, IO, how do you get data in and out of the building in a secure manner? Um, and we made sure that those designs were aligned with the TPN's expectation, the Trusted Partner Network, which is an industry body that just about everyone in m and would, would know. Um, and we also did some initial governance and policy documents that our customers could use if they were sort of facing an initial audit. Um, and really, it was aimed at trying to reduce the friction um, associated with and some of the fear and, and anxiety around, you know, getting audited and trying to design an environment or address issues within an environment. Um, and so a lot of our customers have, have received that very well and, and are quite excited by that. Uh, and so we continue to be engaged at that level and trying to stay abreast of um, all of the uh, governance and expectations there and, and some of the things that would occur in an audit, including those associated with hybrid or cloud environments. Um, we obviously have our own um, significant capabilities within Dell um, from a consulting perspective. Um, and I suppose the third thing I would mention would be partnerships such as that with the Architecture and others. Um, which have a range of different solutions that are addressed at specifically mitigating the risk within media and entertainment um, as it relates to data um, and and content. Working with those trusted partner networks gives confidence to your customers then knowing that they've met a certain level of standards and that when they are working on a project that whoever they're collaborating with can know that they have been essentially vetted that there's been precautions taken in place through the technology and practices. Yeah, and it also means that we, you know, through enablement internally of our sales teams, for example, um, it means that they can use the language that the customer, you know, understands. um, And they actually understand some of the challenges that our customers are going through that are industry specific um, and can help bring them solutions or potential solutions to those problems um, because of that understanding all that vocabulary that they have. Well, I think actually people need to revisit the way in which we uh, view this problem. Uh, we've had file systems for a long time, and then we got cyber criminals uh, doing things in those file systems. So we added mechanisms to try and stop that, but we didn't change the file system. Mm-hmm. We just mm-hmm. kept the file systems that we had, uh, and we've uh, bolted things on. We've taken a first principles look at that and say, how can we stop things happening at the front door, but still keep a file system if we want to, 
that said, we're not going to, we're not going to, uh, there's no hubris here. We're not going to say we can stop everything at the front door. That would be a very dangerous position to be at because this is a, this is a game. Everybody's trying to gain advantage, but uh, we will find that we've got an ability to add tooling, which gives a first line of defense for, for ransomware. What people don't realize is the advantage of a faster internet and faster interconnect for them is also an advantage to the cyber criminals because they can launch attacks faster and from many different vectors. So uh, the the speed at which this is happening is uh, going up for everyone. So we're all going to be on our toes. Good points. Alex and Jason, I want to thank you once again for participating in this podcast and wrapping it up with some interesting perspectives here. I'm going to share this with our audience. I also encourage them to check out the link provided uh, to check out Jason's article on this topic, The Rise of Cyber and Ransomware. And gentlemen, thank you again for your participation. Thanks so much for having us. Thank you very much, Mark. It's been an absolute pleasure.